three, two, one. We're back Wednesday night, 7.30 Bible study here on the channel. So glad that you're here, everybody. If you would subscribe to the channel, that would be really great. Hit the thumbs up, hit the notification bell so that your smartphone can be truly smart for you and let you know when we provide new content. I didn't know if I was going to get to this content today. We got a Herculean task ahead of us. We're going to go through uh, 2 Kings chapter 3 and chapter 4. Welcome into the deep dive. Kings of Compromise Part 23, and another way you can also help support the channel is just share the content. Tell your friend about it. Are you getting blessed? Tell someone else who needs to be blessed by God's Word. Here's why. Because God's Word fills our hearts. Amen? It fills me, and that's why I'm not afraid to talk about two chapters, two and two long chapters, an incredibly long passage, because... The theme today, these two chapters all coalesce around one central idea. It's about how God fills our empty places. God is the filler, amen? He fills us up. The Bible speaks to emptiness a lot. I don't know if you know this, but any cursory examination of scripture, you will find that God is filling right on the first page. He creates spaces and then he fills them. Look at the first three days of creation. He's, he's creating spaces again and again and again. He creates a space in the heavens. He creates space on the, in the waters. He creates a space in the land and then he fills and he fills and he fills. So God creates spaces and then he, and then he creates a fullness for those spaces. What I'm trying to tell you is the Bible speaks a lot to the topic of emptiness. If you're feeling empty, the Bible's the place to go, friend. Now, this topic is very, very near and dear to my heart because I have a book coming out called Ending Emptiness, and it is on another book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes, which emphasizes Solomon's search for fullness in everything that the world has to offer, and he doesn't find it. And so we go through the book of Ecclesiastes in that book that's coming out. I just received word from my publishers that they are finishing up the final touches for marketing and all that kind of stuff. So it's coming out soon. Thanks for your patience. Let's not rush it. We want it to be well done, well presented. And if you support this channel in any way, you get the, uh, financially, you get the first chapter digitally free delivered to you once it is out. If you support this channel monthly for any amount, you get a hard copy sent to you automatically. Thank you for supporting the channel. Thanks for being here. Let's get into it. The Kings of Compromise. So like I said, lots and lots of text to get to. Let's not waste any time. Right to the text. 2 Kings chapter 3. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. So, there's a new king in the northern kingdom. His name is Jehoram. He is also the son of Ahab. He is the brother to Ahaziah, who was the son of Ahab, who took over after Ahab was dead. Well, Ahab was so wicked, God put him to death quickly. Jehoram has 12 years of, of uh, power. He is wicked, but look at what it says in verse 2. Not as bad as his father and mother. 
he actually put away the pillar of Baal, but he still worshiped at the high places and the golden calves that Jeroboam had made uh, in the north and in the south of the land of Israel. You remember Jeroboam's Israel uh, sin was that he formulated his own kind of like feelings-oriented religion. And the reason why he did that was because he didn't want Israel to be reunited back to the southern kingdom of Judah. And so he formulated his own version of faith. And we did a lot about that uh, way back on the channel, but that's the sin of Jeroboam. Here's the point about these three verses right off the bat. You see a distinction between Ahab's wickedness and Jeroboam's wickedness. I'm sorry, Jerome, Jerome. <laughs> what is the word? What's the name? Jehoram. There we go. You see a distinction between Ahab's wickedness and Jehoram's wickedness. And Jehoram is not as wicked as Ahab. And that's how God records it. No, not all sin is the same. This is a misnomer. Okay. You, we do not believe, and Christians should not believe this, that all punishment will be the exact same punishment in hell. There will be gradations of punishment. There will be gradations of hell. Just like there will be gradations of reward in heaven. So our behavior does matter whether or not we're believers, okay? If you're not a believer, well, sin lasts even if you're not because hell will be a lot more tolerable for you. I'm not saying it's going to be good, but it will be a lot more tolerable than it will be for Ahab, just as it will be more tolerable for uh, Jehoram than um, Ahab. So that's the first three verses. Let's continue. Verse four. Now, Misha, the king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel, that is Jehoram, 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all of Israel. Let's talk about what's going on here. Weak kings, and let me say this, weak presidents produce international cri crises, Okay. Weak leaders produce international chaos. That is who Ahab, uh, Ahab's son, sons were. I'm sure that his wicked son Ahaziah didn't help. And then Jehoram is uh, e uh, equally wicked as, well, not equally wicked, but a little bit less wicked. He's still wicked. And, and he creates this, this boldness in Misha, the king of Moab, to rebel. Now, at this time, Moab was bringing this tribute to Israel. Israel was dominating Moab. By the way, there is an ancient artifact from the remains, from the archaeological digs of the land known as Moab. And they actually found the writings of King Mesha. And he talks about being delivered from the king of Israel <clears throat> around this time. That his god, Kamosh, a false god, of course, of the Moabites, delivered them. Um, just a little archaeological fact that proves that the Bible is actually true. It's really cool to talk about that. But anyway, not much time to deal with that. Let's continue on with the passage of Scripture. But what we have is we have a weak leader and his um, tribute is dried up, that is stopped, and those whom he rules over, the surrounding kingdoms, rebel against him. Verse 7 says this, And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Remember Jehoshaphat? We talked about him a couple of episodes ago. He's the king of Judah. Uh, it says the king of uh, uh, Jehoram sends this message. The king of Moab has rebelled against, against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, by which shall we march? Which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. Okay, a couple of things should look familiar here. Number one, Jehor Jehoshaphat. There's so many weird names. You get them confused when you're teaching the Bible. But Jehoshaphat, king of the south, the Judah, uh, David's kingdom. The last time we talked about this guy, he was faced with this same appeal, but from Ahab. Ahab was like, I'm going to go to battle. I guess I'm, no, Ahab was like, people come to battle against me and I need, I need help. Will you go to battle? What does Jehoshaphat do? He partners with Ahab. Now we know from biblical texts elsewhere that Jehoshaphat was also in a marriage alliance through their children to the king 
of Israel to the north. So he's got this wicked king that he's an in-law to. So what he said to Ahab, I am as you are, my people, your people, my horses, your horses. He says to Ahab's son, Jehoram here, I am as you are, my people, your people, my horses, your horses. Remember we said Jehoshaphat was the dingbat. Jehoshaphat the dingbat, why? Because he was gullible. He had no discernment. And if there is something that I wish I could inject through um, IV into the, <laughs> into the spirit, blood, spirit life of believers today, it is that, discernment. You need discernments. You need to get wise, Christians, about who you associate with, who you listen to. Being a believer does not mean you believe everything. Being a Christian does not mean that you are a gullible um, dingbat, okay? You've got to have a spirit of discernment. The Holy Spirit wants to guide you into wisdom, not foolishness. Anyway, Jehoshaphat does not learn. He does not change who he is. And that's a lot of us do. We don't change. So anyway, he is all in to fight this battle with the king of Moab, uh, yeah, against the king of Moab with the king of Israel. Verse nine says this, so the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And they go around and they make this circuitous, circuitous. They made a long roundabout march, there we go, of seven days and there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. So they're with the king of Edom and the king of Israel and the king of Judah. And they're out there going through the wilderness of Edom to invade Moab. They're taking a long route. Why? Probably because he's thinking strategically. He's not thinking spiritually. And that's what non-believers do. They think strategically. They think naturally, but they don't think supernaturally. They don't think God can help them. They make this long circuitous. <laughs> I'm so mad at myself that I can't pronounce that word. But anyway, long roundabout march, seven days. The army runs out of water. And this is a problem. And notice the response of the king of Israel, the wicked king, Jehoram. He says, alas, the Lord has called these three things to give them into the hand of Moab. He's, he's saying, oh, God is just out to get me. That's basically what he's saying. Do you know what Jehoram is? He is a game, blame game believer. He is a blame game believer. This is what I mean by that. And there are a host of people in churches around the world and outside of churches around the world who are like this. They never talk to God except to blame him when things go wrong. This is what atheists do all the time, by the way. <laughs> atheists are famous for making arguments against the existence of God only with half of the evidence of their life. They take all the bad and they put it into a pile and they say, see all this bad? See all this bad in the world? That's because God doesn't exist. Okay, but what about all the good? What about all the people that have done really wonderful things? What about the fact that we have so many blessings on this earth? Do you ever look at that? If you're going to look at the bad and say God is not there because of bad, well, then what about all the good? If you have healthy children as an atheist, isn't that good? Do you have money in your pocket? Isn't that good? Do you have food you know, in your stomach? Isn't that good? So here's though the problem. You know, atheists are going to be atheists, but the half-hearted believers are even worse because they only, only talk to God to blame him. Are you a blame game believer? You're only talking to God when things are terrible. Don't do it. Don't be like that. That, who, that is who Jehoram is is, and it's not a place for God's people. Verse 11, it says this, and Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, now remember Elijah has been hauled up to heaven on the chariots of fire. Elisha, his predecessor, oh, not his, his successor, the son of Shaphat is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the Lord, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to um, Elisha. 
So here's the picture. You've got Jehoram blaming God for his problems. He only talks to God when there's problems. You have Jehoshaphat in the midst of problems saying, wait, problems are not the opportunity to blame God. Problems are the opportunity to seek God. Please notice in this text that you have three kings. One silent, king of Edom. Let's leave, let's leave him out of discussion for right now. But you have Ahab, um, Ahab's son, Jehoram, and you have Jehoshaphat. And both kings experience the same hardship. One responds with blame. The other responds with seeking God. See, here's the point that I'm trying to make, and I want to make sure that you get it right off the bat. Christians and non-Christians will experience the same hardship, but they have different responses to that hardship. Christian, you're going to go through the same things that non-Christians do. Being a Christian does not absolve you of worldly events such as death, cancer, trouble, job loss, difficulties with relationships. That is the human experience. You're going to experience things that everybody else experiences. It is, if Christianity was this way of pain avoidance, everybody would be a Christian. <laughs> everybody would be a Christian because it would be a, a self-serving way to get the life that you want, pain-free. But that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about knowing the God of heaven and earth and having him in your life through the pain and hardship. Anyway, when trouble hits, do you blame or do you seek God? That is a huge question right off the bat. So verse 13, Elisha says to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? In other words, I have nothing to do with you. Go back to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. In other words, go, go to the yes men that your father Ahab hired to prophesy victory to him. But the king of Israel said to him, no, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I had regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. In other words, Elisha says, I don't want anything to do with you, Jehoram. But because there's this guy, Jehoshaphat, standing next to you, talking to me, I'm listening. Here's a little picture for us. We, God would not have anything to do with us if it weren't for our big brother, Jesus, who stands right next to us and aligns with us. You see, Jehoshaphat is a little bit of a picture of Christ here. He has aligned with us. Now, we actually align with him. He, he makes us align with him. He changes our hearts. He brings us to himself. But we have a true and better Jehoshaphat standing before us in the presence of God. And he is our intercessor. And he is the reason why God hears us. And he has made a way for us to enter boldly into the throne of grace, to find mercy, and to receive grace, to help us in our time of need. That is the picture that you have here. God would have nothing to do with you. So the next time that you want to say, I know God doesn't want to listen to me. No, he doesn't want to listen to you because you are disconnected through your sins. But by faith in Christ Jesus, God listens to his son and Jesus always lives to intercede. That is come between you and the father and present your knees to him and pray to the father on your behalf. That's the good news of the gospel. So yeah, you should feel unworthy to approach God. But in Christ Jesus, you are now made worthy to approach God and you can be confident. First John chapter four, you can be confident when you pray because you love the Father, because you, because you believe in the Son, the Father has set his love upon the Son, and you stand in the Son's righteousness, and the Father hears your prayers. Amen? Powerful stuff there, right in the heart of 2 Kings chapter 3. Let's go on, verse 15. So Elijah says, I'll listen to you because Jehoshaphat is there, and then he says in verse 15, but now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. Now, 
he asked for a musician and it's kind of funny like he's like okay strike up and i have this like kind of little <laughs> fun phrase with my with my uh band at my church uh, i need some soft spiritual music you know if we want to see god move we need some soft spiritual music ssm right <laughs> so the reality is music is powerful. Remember when Saul was having fits of rage and it would be David who would come in and play the harp and calm Saul's heart. And that's what happened. You know, when the spirit of God is upon a musician and the musician plays in the power of the Holy Spirit, the the Lord can bring calm, peace, power, presence into that moment. Let me just take an aside here and say music is a very instrumental part of being formed in your spiritual life. Music. A lot of you are all for the message, but you also need music. You need worship. Music in worship. Every church gathering that you go to has some measure of music, usually in the beginning of the church service. Why? It is not the pregame show. It is not the, hey, just in case you're late, you're not going to miss the message, so we'll just play some music. You know, this is, this is not the warm-up act, the opening act. This is a moment to open your heart to the Lord, to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit, start to invade the space in which you're gathered, and start to reveal Christ to you. Now, let me just make a couple of qualifiers about that. And this is so important. Um, Worship is not singing and singing is not worship. Do not make them equivalents. Just because the church is singing doesn't mean it's worshiping. And um, worship is not only defined by singing. Worship can involve singing and singing can be worshipful, but there is a test. And this is the litmus test as to whether your singing is worship. Okay, the test is this. Worship is singing when the singing is centered on the Lord. You got that? A lot of churches, they sing songs, have nothing to do with the Lord, have a lot to do with us. That is not singing. Okay? They have a lot to do with feelings. They're basically pop songs. If you can, and this is a great test for you, if you can recite the lyrics of your favorite worship song to a non-believer and they just think it's some pop song about a love relationship with some other person, it's probably not a, a Christ-centered song. And here's the reality of the Christian music industry. These churches that are pumping out Christian music all the time, they're always under pressure. They're always under pressure to produce an album full of music. And so what happens is they've got to produce like 15 songs or 12 to 15 songs to fill an album. And they probably have like three good songs that are very Christ-centered. And the rest is fluff. Well, you know, that's just the, that's just the artistic you know, machine. You, you, you can't produce 12 incredible Christ-centered songs. Most people can't. A lot of people can't. Some people can. Not, don't, don't shout at me now what artists can do it. I don't want to hear it. My point is, is that sometimes the machine creates this singing that's not actually worship. It's more me-centered, feelings-oriented, Jesus make-out music. That's what I call it, Jesus make-out music, where Jesus is not even mentioned. The, cro- the cross isn't mentioned. The wrath of God is never mentioned. You know, the righteousness and holiness and the fear of the Lord is not part of the singing. It's all about this emotional appeal to our hearts and purposes and Jesus is in love with us and we're in love with him. And blah, blah, blah. Ah, I, I have no taste for that music. And I think that the, mo- the more mature that you get in Christ, the less taste that you have with that kind of music. I understand when you're young in the Lord, the Jesus makeout music is appealing because when you're young, your feelings are still fresh and you're still probably young anyway. So feelings are a big part of who you're, your life. When you get older, feelings are not as important. Let me just tell you that. When you get stronger in the Lord, feelings are really not important at all, at all anymore. You just have this firm confidence. And I think that Christian growth 
is when it's less about feelings and more about just faith. Faith doesn't have to have feelings and feelings doesn't have to define faith. And you just are strong in faith because you've walked with the Lord long enough to know that he is always going to be who he is. He's always going to be enough. He's always going to fill your life, strengthen your life, protect your life, provide for your life. And in the end, he's going to unite your life with himself in the presence of heaven. Anyway, that is just an aside. Elisha wants to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit through the word. And so he asks for music. Do not neglect worship music. Do not regret, re- neglect in your life the singing at your church, provided it's Christ-centered, because I believe it opens your heart to the move of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me look at verse 15 with you in the New King James Version, because it says something different than in the other translations. Here's what the New King James Version says. Um, bring me a musician. Elijah says, it happened when the music, musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him and he said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. Now that is different than the last chapter. What does the last chapter say? I will make this dry bed uh, full of pools. But the New King James Version, what? Make this valley full of ditches. In other words, you've got to dig. You've got to work. And here's the point. If you want to see God provide a miracle, if you want to see God provide for your life, you got you to gotta work. Okay, too many people think, I'm going to pray and not do anything. And I'm going to pray and wait. No, God blesses work. God put Adam into the garden to work it and to keep it. God blesses effort. They've got to dig the ditches to see the Lord provide. And that's exactly what Elisha says when the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he prophesies how this army is going to survive in the middle of the wilderness when there is no water for them. Well, here's how the... The Lord speaks um, next in verse 18. It says, this is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. In other words, this is small. You think this is a big deal, but it's small to God. And that is kind of how we have to see all of our problems. We see them as huge because we are in the moment. Uh, We're overwhelmed. Maybe we haven't been to that point in our life before, so we don't know how it's going to happen. But just listen to the scripture. Nothing's too hard for God. In fact, nothing's hard for God. Everything is actually easy for God. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. And it says this, God's going to go further than that. He's not just going to provide water for your army. It says he will also give the Moabites into your hand and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning about the time of the offering of the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. Now look, God instructs the people of Israel to to demolish the people of Moab. And you think that's not right. That's not fair. What kind of God allows him to allows his people to destroy some foreign people? You're going to realize that at the end of this chapter. So just hold tight. Let's put a pin into that thought and let's continue here and look at when did the miracle take place? It says about the time of what? Offering the sacrifice. So there you have work, dig the ditches and what? Worship. Elisha worships with music and then they worship through the sacrifice and God starts pouring out the water. Work and worship. Here's the first thing that I'm talking about when it comes to emptiness. In your emptiness, you will experience, I'm sorry, in your life, you will experience times of dryness, times where you do not have what it takes to continue. And you're wondering, what am I going to do? How am I going to make ends meet? How am I going to get my life going? How am I going to feel like God is working on my behalf? Well, you're going to do two things. You are going to work and you are going to worship. Both go together. There are there are Christians that think it's only work and I have to do everything to provide for my family. And I can't afford to go to church and I don't have time to spend with the Lord. And I can't just focus on, I have to get busy, 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 busy. And they're over on that extreme. And then there are Christians that are just, I'm only going to pray and I'm going to worship. I'm going to go to church and I'm going to just sit in the pew and I'm going to wait for God to show up and do something. And it's like, no, wait, God is involved in both 
aspects of your life. He wants you worshiping and working. That's what the Garden of Eden was supposed to be. A place of work and worship with the Lord. Work, cultivate, grow fruits, vegetables, food, make things, develop things, and do these things in worship to God. So the first thing about emptiness, we all are born empty. We all are born with nothing, really. I mean, a child really cannot do much unless they're a complete genius, and those people are very rare. But nonetheless, your life gets started. Listen, listen, Christians. Your life gets moving when you work and worship. Don't neglect either, and don't be an extremist one to the other. You can't pray all day, and you can't only work. You have to do both, okay? Back to the text, verse 21. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning, the sun shone on the water. The Moabites saw the water opposite them red as blood, And they said, verse 23, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then Moab to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the city on every good piece of land. Every man threw a stone until it was covered. Uh, It says this, they stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Ker-Harasheth. And the slingers surrounded and attacked it now. God provides this optical illusion through the sun with the water that he provides to nourish the army or water the army and then to confuse their enemies. Isn't it amazing? And this is a cool point. that The same water that empowers Israel's army or God's army is also the water that confuses his enemies. Why do I say that? Because the Holy Spirit is symbolized in scripture as the water. Jesus said, if you come to me and drink out of your... Uh, innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And then John says, by this, he meant the spirit uh, that he was to give to those who believed in him after he rose again. So water is a picture of the Holy Spirit. When you work as a Christian in your life, okay, I'm not saying work for your salvation. I'm saying work in life. And then when you worship and you add those things together, God starts to fill you with the power of the Holy Spirit. He does. And that will change you. And the change will be confusing to the people who don't believe. Got it? This is, this is really cool to see the New Testament realities hidden in these Old Testament stories. So the same water that nourishes God's people confuses God's people's enemies. And the same is true for you. The same Holy Spirit that encourages you and blesses you and builds you up will be confusing to those who are around you and they don't understand why are you that way. It is because you are a new person. You were born again with a new spirit. You have the Holy Spirit and you are no longer part of this world. And, and the die has been cast and you have crossed the Rubicon and there's no going back. Rejoice, Christian that you might be strange to this world because you are at home with God. Okay, verse 26, when the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. And then here's what, here's what I want to take the pin out. Now let's look at the pin. Uh, verse 27, then he took his oldest son who was to reign in his place and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Okay, what does the king of Moab do when the battle turns against him? He offers his son as a sacrifice. As a burnt offering, he literally slices his son's neck, bleeds him out on the altar, and burns his body in front of the army. That is a culture of child sacrifice. That is a culture that God says, time to wipe them out. And you see in our culture right now this 
on one side of the culture, a, an absolute affection, not, not even an allowance or tolerance for, but an affection for abortion because abortion promises prosperity and blessing and, you know, jobs and status and fame and fortune if you kill your children that are conceived in an inconvenient way. And that is the God of this culture. And that is a culture that is deteriorated to the point where God might just strike them down once and for all. Honestly, that's what you have here in the king of Moab. But they were killing children that were born. And I shared this on the deep end last night with Tucker Carlson's speech. And I want to share it with you now. Um, He says rightly that there has never been a culture where they found that child sacrifice was not part of the culture. And that is true. It was true for the Aztecs. It was true for... Uh, the Seminoles, it was true for the Europeans, the, the Nordiques, the Africans in still parts of the world. They are killing or offering children or human sacrifices to the gods for prosperity. So it is happening in our modern world too, through abortion. This is the problem with the human heart. We think that if we just give up our children, we will have the good life. When the gospel speaks to this by saying God has given up his child, his only son, so that you can have life. So in, in some ways, it speaks to the need of the gospel to be preached to us at, and, and exposes to the human heart the reality that, yeah, that, that desire to you know, sacrifice your children to get the good life actually is pointing to the fact that God actually sacrificed his child to give you the good life, to bring you to the good life. And, and it's you know, kind of a roundabout way to preach the gospel to people. I wouldn't recommend it to the person who's pro-abortion in your, in your home or in your workplace. But nonetheless, I digress. Let's get back to the text. And we're changing gears now from chapter three, which was a national win through work and worship. And you could say it was kind of like an emptiness of purpose, an emptiness of energy. Um, God provides fullness through work and worship. Now, turn the page, chapter four, verse one. Now, the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead, as you know that your servant feared the Lord. I'm sorry, he says, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Okay, a couple of things here. Uh, women in the ancient world had no rights, no property, no legal um, recourse if their husbands died. They were basically going to be impoverished for life from that point forward, and their sons very likely would be sold as slaves to a creditor. She is the wife of a prophet who served with Elisha. She is a pastor's wife, and she is going through trouble. And this is the reality of life. Good and bad people will both experience trouble. So here we have an empty financial situation. So in the previous segment, vignette of scripture, an empty purpose, an empty energy, now an empty bank account. What do you do? Well, Elijah says, what do you got in your house? And this is where the story really gets cool. Verse three, she says, a jar with a little oil. He says in verse three, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. So go get a bunch of empty vessels. <laughs> then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. Notice. All the references to going in and closing the door and filling these vessels. Well, Jesus will say in Matthew chapter six about prayer that that's exactly what we do. When you pray, Matthew 6, 6, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When things are running low in your life, financially, pray. When the creditors are coming for you, pray. 
when spiritual creditors are coming for you, when you are in debt, there's an emptiness inside you spiritually, emotionally, physically, financially, pray. Shut the door. Do business with God. And start to ask God to fill things in your life. This is what happens with this woman. She's filling the jars. The sons are bringing the jars. She had to go and create. Here's what she actually first had to do. She had to create a bunch of empty places for God to fill, isn't it? Isn't that exactly what happens? She has to create these empty spaces. This is a beautiful picture of prayer, by the way. She creates these empty spaces and then she pours the oil and God fills them. And the fullness that she was to experience was only limited by her faith in the number of vessels that she gathered. Here's the point for you. And let's read the scripture and then I'll make some points actually. Verse six, when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there's not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God. And he said, go sell the oil, pay your debts. And you and your sons can live on the rest. The oil stopped at the place of her preparation and prayer. The oil stopped at the place of her expectation. The Lord will answer your prayers. And I believe he will answer your prayers to the extent of your prayers. Where are the empty places in your life? And are you creating empty places in your life through prayer? Here's what I mean by that. Are you identifying the areas in your life where, wait a second, God hasn't done something there yet. God hasn't done something there yet. God hasn't done something there yet. And you're creating these spaces for God to start filling those places. So what what do you need to start praying for? What do you need to start asking God to fill in your life? Some of you have children, but you haven't prayed over them yet. Some of you have young children who are just starting school. You need to pray over their educational process. Some of you have um, no spouse. And this is an obvious one. A lot of people pray for a spouse, but then once you have the spouse, don't stop praying for the spouse. Hello. Don't stop praying just because you got the spouse. Now you got to pray for them specifically and for your relationship with them. Hey, married people, are you praying for God to change your spouse? Or are you praying for God to fill you and your spouse with love and affection for each other? That's a game changer. When you get a house, you prayed for the house, but don't stop praying for the house once you own the house. You see, this is the reality of prayer. And I think that we've got to realize that there is an enemy out there that wants to put us into debt. He wants to sell our family down the river. That's what this woman was experiencing. And if we don't pray and ask God to start filling areas of our lives, the jars, consider your work life, your social life, your relational life, your marriage life, your single life, your parental life, your, I already said educational life, your professional life. Fill those prayers, fill those jars, Lord, fill those jars. I'm praying for success in my work. I'm praying that you will make me a successful worker. I'm praying for my marriage to be strong. I'm praying for my spouse and I to love each other. I'm praying for my child to grow in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Get in those closed doors meetings with God and Jesus promised that he will reward us. There you go. Two pictures of emptiness. The emptiness of the riverbeds they had to work and worship. The emptiness of the home or the purse or the wallet, you could call it. And they had to pray and act in faith. And now we get to vignette number three in this two chapter segment of second Kings chapter four, verse eight. It says this one day, Elisha was went on to Shunem where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there and eat food. And by the way, I just want to say food works with preachers. <laughs> you want your preacher hanging out with you, buy him some dinner anyway. And she said to her husband, behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. 
Okay, now we have a woman who actually creates an empty room for the prophet. But what we will find out is that this woman with the empty room actually has an empty womb. She has an empty womb, W-O-M-D. And because she made room, an empty room, for the prophet who represents the word of God, this is a powerful principle, her womb is going to be filled through the prophet. Now, not sexually, of course, through the word of the Lord. And so this is a really cool moment, and I'd never seen this before, but some of you need this word. To the extent that you honor God's word in your life and make room, that's what she does. She goes up, she makes a room for the prophet so they can come and stay there. To the extent that you make room for God's word in your life, you will start to experience the fruitfulness that God has already put in you in your spiritual womb for productivity in your life. And here's the best part. He will give you productivity and fruitfulness in areas you did not even plan for. That's the case with this woman. Let's take a look at how it goes down. Verse 11, one day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call the Shunammite. And when he had called her, he stood before, she, she stood before him and he said, and he said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all the trouble for us. What can be done or what is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. She's like, no, I don't need your political assistance. I don't need any kind of like special word. I don't need any kind of special favors. Um, then it says this, verse 14, and he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. Aha, 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 Elisha says. So verse 15, call her, he said. When he called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. Now, now that is an obvious response to say, I do not want you messing with my emotions. I've been, I've been asking for this. I've been hoping for this. I want this, but God has said no. So please don't tell me something that I'm going to get my hopes up about and it's not going to come true. But guess what happens there? Verse, verse 17, the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time the following spring as Elijah had said to her. Here's the point. This is so cool. I had never seen this in this text before. And I have studied this text. I have preached this text many, well, not many times, but I've seen this text many times. I've preached it, I think three or four times. She does want a son. There is something inside of her heart that's there that she does not see happening. It's something in her heart that is not yet born. The one who pulls it out of her, the one who gets that out of her life is the word of God that she made room for in her life. Let me share with you a very cool proverb. Proverbs 20, Proverbs 20 verse five, it says this, the purpose of a man's heart is like, a deep, is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Now, this is the case, I believe, for every single one of us. There are things in your life that are yet to be conceived and you are not even thinking about them. In fact, they might be long dead dreams and long dead desires. Your husband's old, you know, it's too late for you. It's this, it's that. And God is waiting to just draw it out. There's deep water in your heart and God is just waiting to speak into your heart and start to draw things out. Here's what that means for you. The more room that you make for God's word in your life, the more, um, of that depth of who you are and who you know you should be will come out 
through your life. He will bless you. He will. The scripture says in Psalm 37 verse four, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the promise. He will give you the desires of your heart. So I don't know about you, but when it comes to Proverbs 20 verse five, I don't think there's any greater man of understanding than Jesus Christ. So when you, when you know that there are things in here that aren't coming out, turn to Jesus Christ in his word and he, Jesus Christ, will be the man of understanding who draws it out of you. What, I wonder, this is my big question for you. What, I wonder, has yet to be conceived or born in your life, but will start to be so when you make room for God in your life. So you have an empty ditch, work and worship. You have an empty purse, prayer and faith. You have an empty womb, word of God and uh, conception. That This is all harmonizing. These two chapters are harmonizing around this theme of emptiness very profoundly. Okay, let's continue because it doesn't get, it, it, gets, it gets worse for the woman as many times it does for us. Verse 18, when the child was grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers and he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. This is exactly what dads do. And when he had lifted him up and brought him to his mother, the child sat, her, sat on her lap till noon and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Okay, tragedy strikes. This is the gift that God gave her she got this gift, this son, because God's word was, she made room for God's word in her life. The word of God was the impetus behind her receiving the son, and now the son is dead. So what do you do when God births something in you through his word, and then it dies? You go back to the word. You do not do what Jehoram does and blame God. You seek God. You do what Jehoshaphat does. Is there not a prophet of the Lord that we can consult? So she goes back to Elisha. And it says in verse 22, she called her husband and said, send me one of the servants and the donkeys that I may go quickly to the man of God and come back. And he said, why would we go to him today? It is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. In other words, there's two feast days every month, Sabbaths, about three or four or five a month. And then there's a new moon every month. And it's not those religious services. Why are you going to church when it's not church? You can see that her husband, not only just being kind of like this disconnected dad, but he's also kind of like this disconnected worshiper, like this nominal worshiper she's married to. He's like, well, why go to church now? It doesn't matter what's happening. And she says, nope, all is well. She saddled the donkey, verse 24, and she said to a servant, urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace unless I tell you. She's running. She is going as fast as she can to the man of God. Verse 25, she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you, is all well with your husband, is all well with the child, and she answered, all is well. Now that's kind of an interesting statement, right? All is well, but not all is well. What is she saying? She's saying all is well because I'm with you. All is well when I'm with the word. If I've got the word, all is well. Verse 27, and when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. So now he knows something is up. And Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, no, leave her alone. She's in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. This is all very mystical, you know, wording. Because that's kind of like what it is when we're dealing with the word. You know, you don't go to the word with your complaints. You don't. You go to the word for the sake of the word. And that's really what we're seeing here in this woman's life. Some, of, some people like to do that with the Bible. They just, I only go to the Bible when I really need something. And so they do this thing where they flip it open, like, boom. What does it say? You know, <laughs> that's not how you approach God's word. You don't go to God's word to get an answer to your particular situation. You go to God's word for the sake of God's word. Let him speak as he wants to speak to you before you come, you know, flushing out the answers to the questions of your life right now. That is how this goes down with this woman 
in this moment. And it's a powerful illustration for you and for me. Verse 28, it says this. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? And right away, Elisha's like, okay, I got you. He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. So she's like, no, I'm not going to go back and just get my son back. I need the word of the Lord. This is an important principle for us. Again, going to the word of the Lord for the sake of the word of the Lord, not for the sake of our answers to the needs of our life. So she is with the word no matter what. Gehazi, Bible says in verse 31, Gehazi went ahead, laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him the child has not awakened. Verse 32, when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them. Again, this is an illustration of prayer. Prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. This is a picture of the cross. Obviously, Jesus is associating with us in the cross. He becomes man. He becomes one of us. He he lives like us. He walks amongst us. He identifies with us. And through his identification with us, we are raised to life just like this uh, Shunammite woman's son is raised to life. Verse 35. Then he got up again, walked back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. He says this twice. The child sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Now, let's pause there for a second. Why the mention of the seven sneezes? And everybody wants to like super spiritualize that. And I get it. We could. But here's the reality. The reason why the seven sneezes are recorded is because this is not a fable. This is not a once upon a time moment. This is a real story. They saw the child sneeze seven times. Somebody's like, whoa, six, five, six. Seven, seven sneeze, weird, strange. So it, it happened. That's what you're supposed to see. These, these details are unique to the Bible and it separates the Bible from the fables of the ancient world because the ancient world wouldn't be, deal with those details. It's proven the Bible is historically true. Verse 36, then he summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. He called her and when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Um, powerful moment. Uh, this is the third vignette that we've got here. And now we move on to the fourth vignette. So every, every vignette has been an, an, a, a story of emptiness, an empty ditch, an empty wallet, an empty womb. And now you're going to see an empty uh, cabinet, or you would say a famine, which is also another symbol of emptiness in the scriptures. Verse 38. And Elijah came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servants, sit, set the large pot uh, sorry, set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it, uh, gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. So we've got this theme of emptiness today, right? We've had an empty ditch, an empty house, an empty womb. And now we have, and I want to say this, this is the prophets here in Gilgal. We have an empty church. We have an empty church. There, there is no food in the church. Now listen, your church can be filled with people and still be empty because there's no word of God in the church. And that is kind of what the picture is here. Not kind of, that is the picture here in verse 38 and 39. The school of prophets have a famine and because there's no word, there's no truth, they turn to anything to fill them, including these gourds from the wild vine. What happens? Verse 40, and they poured some of the some of the stew out for the men to eat. But while they were eating the stew, they cried out, oh man of God, there is death in the pot. Someone must have been bitter. Maybe somebody passed out, who knows? And they could not eat it. And he said, bring, bring flour 
And they threw and he threw it into the pot and said, pour some out for the men and they, that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. Here's what Elisha does. He becomes a symbol here in this moment for the church. And what you have is a picture of grace. The death in the pot is the curse of sin. Death is a part of the curse that came upon the world because of sin. What is the answer to the curse of sin? The grace of God, which brings life. By grace, you are saved through faith. It is not of works that no man may boast. It is the grace of God that brings life to the dead. And so the flower, picture of Christ, who is the bread of life, who brings salvation to us through grace. You want an empty church? Have no grace. You want a full church? Be full of grace. And that is the picture here. That is a cool picture for every child of God. Because you can get to the point in your Christian walk where you have things going for you so well that you start having no grace for the people who are still struggling. And that is not a good place to be. You want to be a church. You want to be a member of a church. You want to be a part of a church. You want to be a, a, a part of a church that is full of grace because grace brings people in. The grace is the is grace in the church is when we focus on Jesus and not our works. Grace in the church is when we all understand that we are saved by grace and not because we're good people. Grace in the church is filled with humbled people, not haughty people. Grace in the church is filled with uh, confessing sinners, not covering and cowering hypocrites. Grace in the church is symbolized by Christ being preached and not man's wisdom being preached. And that is what you have here at the last part of this chapter. Now there's one more vignette. Verse 42. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Now this has all the shadowy illustrations, the shadowy uh, imagery of Jesus feeding 5,000. There's a hundred men. There's only a limited amount of food and this guy comes, but what does he bring? What does he bring? Do you see it there in the text? It's so clear as day. He brings the first fruits to the man of God. This is the tithe. This is the offerings. This is your first fruits that go to God. It's Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord with your first fruits and the increase of your harvest and your vats will be filled with wine and your barns will be filled with plenty. If you put God first financially, he will bless you abundantly. And this is how you get multiplication in your life. Some of you have just enough, but God wants to give you more than enough. That is called multiplication. Multiplication happens when you bring the first fruits of your increase to God. Period. Full stop. And so that is kind of the amazing picture that we have here throughout these two chapters of God filling empty places. That's the text. Let's tap into truth. Okay. What are we going to talk about when we look at these two chapters? And like I said, we just did a bunch of texts. We covered a ton of scripture and I believed we could do it. Give me a thumbs up in the comments. If you believed we could do it, we can get through these two chapters. Um, what do we got from this text? Some things that we can tap into first, the troubles of life are unavoidable. Our response is everything. So we have in this text, an overwhelmed army. We have a starving widow who was married to a prophet who was about to lose her sons. We have a barren woman who was sharing her home with the prophet. She gets a son and the son dies. We have a famine with a poisoned food supply in the school of the prophets. 
trouble happens to everyone. The Christian faith is not the road of ease. It is not the road that promises you no trouble. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world, you, his followers, will have tribulation, take heart, I've overcome the world. Paul said in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Just notice that line. We are afflicted how? In every way. You will have trouble. You will have tribulation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. There is common trouble no matter who you are. And you've got to learn to expect that and not give up and not become a Jehoram and blame God because of trouble, but seek God. And Elisha is kind of a picture of the church because Elijah is a picture of Christ. Elijah goes to heaven, ascends to heaven, and leaves Elisha in the power of the Spirit behind. And I, I kind of like see, see that there's two ways you can interpret this text, is that Elisha is the voice of the Lord and also a, a representation of the Lord, as the church is the voice of the Lord and a representation of the Lord to the world. So here's the point that I'm trying to make. When it comes to the troubles of life, our response is everything, right? And everyone experiences trouble. Jehoshaphat, a godly king, trouble with his army. A prophet's wife, trouble with the creditors. A kind and giving woman, trouble with a dead son. A school of prophets, trouble with famine and poisoned food. The point is, God does not provide an absence of trouble. He offers his presence in trouble. And why is that important? Because trouble is usually where you come to know God more. And secondly, in trouble, you realize that the presence of God is all you need because his presence provides the potential to solve any problem. So what are we seeing in our life right now? What are you seeing in your country? What are you seeing in your family? What are you seeing in your own finances and your own life? Are there troubles? And you think, I can't believe it. What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? You may have done nothing wrong. You may have been a very godly person, but God does not exempt his godly ones from trouble. In fact, Jesus, in fact, Paul says, everyone who wants to live a godly life will suffer persecution. <laughs> so trouble will happen. It's how you respond and it's who you look to. Are you in the church? Are you in the family of God? Are you in community? Are you getting the word of God in you? Are you closing the door and seeking God in prayer? Are you making room for the word of God in your life as the woman did in her house? You know, are you offering God the first fruits of your increase? Some of you are in financial straits and you're wondering, and you put God last on the list of your financial giving or paying or whatever, and you don't even acknowledge him financially. And then you want God's blessing on you financially. It doesn't happen that way. You, you've got to respond to this trouble the way God asks you to respond. And here's the second thing that we're going to close out with in uh, the truths from this text. God specializes in filling emptiness. He filled the ditches. He filled the women's woman, widow's finances. He filled the woman's house with a son. He filled the pot with good food. He fills empty places. If you're feeling empty, rejoice. God is up to something. If there's an emptiness that you can identify, rejoice. God can fill it. I don't know about you, but when I go away from the Lord's word for a couple of days, and sometimes I do, I just feel such an emptiness inside of me. And it's like, God is speaking to me and saying, yeah, that's not what you're made for. Now come to me and I'll fill you. And as soon as I get into the word of God, there's a fullness. There's an, there's a, there's a, a just a, a presence of the, of the Lord with me. And just, I just sense him. So, so turn, here's the point, turn the empty places in your life into an opportunity. What's your emptiness? What's your emptiness? Let me leave you with five 
empty places from this text. There was an empty purpose. How are we going to win this arm? How are we going to win this battle? We're going to work. We're going to worship. We're not going to be so work oriented. We don't worship. And we're not going to be so worship oriented. We don't work. We're going to do both. That was the first vignette in the text. Then an empty wallet. Well, prayer and faith, prayer and faith. Are you asking God to fill your jars? Are you gathering jars? Are you making some empty places with prayer? Are you acknowledging empty places with prayer and asking God to fill it? An empty home. That's when you bring the word of God in. Make room for God's word. Persevere through the ups and downs. Even if the child dies, even if the dream dies, keep praying, keep seeking God, keep making room in your life for his word. And go to God's word for the sake of God's word, not for <clears throat> the, the, the answers that you want. How about an empty church? You need grace. Because again, sometimes we can get so Christian, we forget that not everybody's a Christian or some people are new Christians and then we have no grace. And how about this empty, op empty, uh, empty opportunity? You got this amazing need before you. <clears throat> you need God's multiplication over your efforts. Where's that going to come from? It's going to come when you start honoring God with the first. That's what giving is. That's what tithing is. That's what putting God first financially does to your life. So in conclusion, God fills empty places. Amen. I can't think of a better promise to leave you with. And to that end, I do leave you with this. Support the channel if you can. Cash app, Tim Hatch Live, timhatchlive.com slash support. Again, the book is coming out and you can get your hands on it through giving. The other thing is no deep dive and no deep, uh, deep end next week, but we do have 10 questions with Tim, which it is the first Thursday of the month. It's been so fast. I can't believe it. Anyway. So first Thursday of the month, 10 questions with Tim. I will see you then. That's the next time this channel will be live. How do you know when we're live? You like the channel, uh, the video, you subscribe, you click the notification bell. And if you know somebody else who would be blessed by this content, share it on your social media channel. That would be amazing. Guys, it is an absolute pleasure, as always, to bring you the word of God. May God bless you and keep you. Amen.